This is exactly right. That's Georgia Hardstar. Thanks. That's Karen Kilgariff. You're welcome. <laughs> and here we are again. That's right. Here we are in the same room for the first time this year. The vibes are off the charts. This time it's really happening. This time it's personal. <laughs> Can you handle it? Can you handle it? Um, Frank's here as well. That's right. Kind of, he's milling around. He's a little bit too interested in Georgia right now. <laughs> he's, and licking the couch. Hi, Frank. He's got a, he's got anxiety issues and it shows. Maybe he smells the same on me. Maybe he's like, we're kindred anxiety spirits. He's like, hey. Hey, I recognize the panic in your eyes. Racing thoughts? <laughs> Sleepless nights? Licking a couch constantly? <laughs> oh, I know you. Oh, yeah. I see. I see his sister. <laughs> See you licking that couch. That's right. How crazy was it in the Great, which is such a great show? Great. When she was pregnant and had to eat handfuls of dirt. <laughs> and I've heard of that. That's a thing mm-hmm. when you're like low on some mineral, right? Yeah, I think there's a mineral issue that you could probably take with a nice centrum. Nowadays. You know, yeah, not back then. No, back then you actually legit had to eat dirt. It The combination of... The costumes, mm. the setting, and then the fact that it's real. Yeah. Like, cause I was like, when season two started, I was like, what's going to happen? And I'm like, oh, it already happened. <laughs> you could look it up on Wikipedia <laughs> of what happened to Catherine the Great. Many people go to college and learn about this intentionally. <laughs> this is actually taught to us in public high schools, but I forgot. I mean, I had no idea. And look. I gone there. I was I busy. There. I was busy that day. I just wish someone had approached learning in a different uh, way for me. With cursing and just sex. Like, yeah, and kind of like these are real people. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And 19 years old <laughs> or 17. Like, right. Right. Like, what the fuck, man? Um, speaking of shows, because that's it's still a pandemic, so that's all I'm really doing. Oh, we're just, we're snapping right into that. Oh, I don't know. We don't have to. No, no, go for it. I just wanted to say that there's a third and final season of the Ricky Gervais show, Afterlife. Oh, shit. Where his, you know, his wife, the whole show premises that his wife had died of cancer. That's not a spoiler. And him, like, <laughs> getting through the grief of it's it. It's not a spoiler. It's not a spoiler. It's called Afterlife. Correct. After her life. But uh, this is the third and final season. And I, we watched it literally in one night. The whole thing? It, and I, lit- I don't cry at things. And I was fucking bawling at the end. No, that show is really beautiful. Uh, It's really, really real and honest. Yeah. Is our friend that brilliant British actress, the tall blonde woman who was the sex worker in the second season? Is she in it? She's not in this season. She gets talked about and referred to, but she must have been filming something else. Well, because she had her own show. Right. uh, Which we've already talked about. But oh, that's I mean, I'll miss her. But yeah, also that's okay. But I mean, what an incredibly done show. It's just it's so it was so beautiful. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. Because, well, I did an extended Christmas vacation where I stayed up north for an extra month. Yeah, you did. And I was in a house that didn't I couldn't figure out it had streaming services. Mm -hmm. It had all the stuff. I couldn't figure out how to make it work. So I was watching a month's worth of regular TV. Ooh. 
And oh, and coming, it's like a time machine you were in. It for real. It was it was like going back to the nineties when I used to just watch the Jamie Foxx show because that's the only channel I got. <laughs> yeah, the WB or UPN. I can't remember which one they were on, but yeah, it was very. I did. I it was a lot of like I'll just watch Law and Order. I'll just watch. Law and Order. That's fine. <laughs> it's easy. That's fine. It's, it's on. You can start in the middle of it. Yep. But, you know, when you're eating a quesadilla or whatever, it's yeah. like not a big deal. It's always it's always good. It's always good. It's always when you've seen before, so it's not like surprises. But then there's there. I, I love the and I talked about this with the that's messed up ladies on their show. But like I love a Jim Gaffigan walk on. Oh yeah. There's so many like New York actors and comics that have bit parts on Law and Order. Right. From the 90s. It's so great. I love it. And that's what That's Messed Up, the Exactly Right podcast is all about. We didn't mean to do that deep (laughs) plug, but if we have to do it, let's fucking do it. Fucking right. You know what? If we're going to do a deep plug, we've already made the announcement on our social media, but we haven't gotten a chance to talk about it together. Yeah. On this public forum, our podcast. You and me face to face. And to say we now are, uh, we have joined with Wondery and Amazon Music to be on their platform and we're super stoked. It's really cool. It's a really big deal in our lives, Mm -hmm. like celebrating deal, like celebration deal. Like it's been in the works for a long time. It's been hard and harrowing and, but at the end, of it all. It's so rewarding. There, it's a like, it's still exactly right. Nothing's changing. We're not, you know, nothing's changing. They're going to help us to grow. But that doesn't mean you have to pay for anything. It's everybody's number one concern, of course. And so don't worry about that part. So it's like, you can still get it on any platform. Wondery just gets to put it out a week early because we're working with them. Right. So that's, that's how deals work. That's how they get it. That's the <laughs> bonus for them. But other than that, it's completely the same. Yeah. So it's very exciting. And we're super excited because then we get to make even more podcasts oh for Wondery, which if you know anything about podcasting, they are uh, the stalwarts of the podcasting business. Yeah. They've been doing it maybe the longest. Yeah. And the wellest. It for sure. <laughs> like a plus work for almost 20 years. Yeah. And it's like, incredible. It's, this is just a big deal for you and me. I think like, I can't wrap my head around it. You know, we started this podcast in my one bedroom apartment because we liked talking to each other about true crime. And like, we've just, we've built a fucking business out of it. And now we have opportunities through Exactly Right to help other people that we admire and that we think are talented grow their own podcasts. And also all the employees at Exactly Right are so fucking incredible and talented that we get to, you know, we get to keep hiring rad people to work with us. Mm -hmm. It's just it feels really lucky. I feel like there's a woman part of it, too, that like two women in any industry is you know, has to work a little harder to kick down doors. And we did it. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I'm proud of you, too. Thank you. Well, you know, here's the thing. When we started this, we let, we do say that that's our party line of like, we didn't know and mm-hmm. it was just this little thing or whatever. But then once we started to know that it was becoming a thing, it was our intention very intentional decisions we began making to make that network and to make that network the way we wanted it to be mm-hmm. and to do business the way we wanted to do business. Right. And, you know, we thank 
you guys who listen and who have supported us all along, because I think you know us well enough to trust us for the intentionality and the consciousness that we bring to what we do and how we do it. And there's, you know, when announcements like this come out, it's like, who knows what can happen, but basically the direction we are, we have now turned to Mm -hmm. is incredibly exciting and has so much potential. Yeah. It's just going to be really amazing. It, it truly feels like, uh, we're now in Barney's we're in Mm, Saks Fifth Avenue Avenue. um, of podcasting. (laughs) It smells like perfume, expensive perfume. And people are like, Oh, do you want to get, do you want to get the perfect blouse with that? pair of jeans that's that expertise yeah it's amazing yeah it's a huge opportunity i could cry if i keep thinking about it and but i thought you didn't cry i don't i said i could cry (laughs) possibly probably i like that on almost every episode you need to talk about how you don't cry right yet you did this one time right (laughs) it's like a monumental thing that i have to point out every time instead of just doing it and being fine with it but like i want you to know like if I'm crying, it's because that's how important it is to me. Oh, Station Eleven! I fucking bawled at the end of it. Too. I ha- I'm only halfway through it because, okay. again, regular TV for the past month. Regular TV, right? <laughs> but I love the way people are raving about Station Eleven on social media. So good! It's, it's such. It's gorgeous. Yeah, that's a good show. Yeah. Um. Well, let's see. I'm. Oh, I could tell the story of getting locked out. <laughs> Of the, of the place I was staying at, which was, it was kind of awesome because it was right, it was the day before I was supposed to leave. Yeah. And we had to record a mini sode. Yeah. And we had a small window to record it. Like usually it's like, can we push it? Can we push it? And everyone can push it. Everyone meaning me and Steven and you. Yeah. But this time it was like, no, we have this two hour window and like we have to do have it. Have to do it then. Yeah. So. We're getting all ready. I have all my stuff upstairs ready to go. I just, uh, I just thought real quick, well, cause you know that when you leave, uh, like you stay a place for an extended period of time. And then when you start getting ready to leave, you start, you just go through room after yeah. room, make sure you didn't leave a charger in the wall. Yeah. Make sure your socks aren't behind the bed right. or whatever. And so I'd been doing that all day and I thought, Oh, the garage, they had a pool table in the garage. Ugh. So I was like, Oh, I, I didn't go out there that much. Yeah. But, um, when my family came to visit me several times, I know they brought stuff out there. Right. So I was going to do a check through. So, conscientious of you right like i'm the adult with it you know in the rental house i go out there the door closes behind me Mm. it's locked and i at first was like oh it's just a it's just a little lock you know it's just like a little turn like one of those little things you turn it didn't seem like it wasn't certainly wasn't a deadbolt so i was like this fine i'll figure something out (laughs) you'll figure you'll learn how to pick locks real quick i'll just kind of well because the we used to have like lockable doors like Mm -hmm. the push-in locks at our old house yeah that that my sister and i would go get a butter knife and you twist it and pop that lock open and then grab the curling iron like don't lock me out of the bathroom again (laughs) so I, that gave me the, you know, yeah. the belief and the confidence that I was like, this is only going to take me a second. And, I'm and you're in a garage with like tools and shit. You're like in the best place to break in. But turns out this garage has, n- n- I think it had a, a Phillips head screwdriver that helped me not at all <laughs> and nothing else. Everything else was just kind of like a nice rental house garage. Well, yeah, so there was table, nothing right? extra. Yeah. yeah. So I messed with that door for an hour and a half. Mm. And meanwhile, 
I was not wearing shoes. I was not wearing a bra. And I had not brushed my hair that morning. Mm. I'd just been drinking coffee. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I had to go outside. And because also I was way the fuck out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. There was other houses around me. I hadn't seen anybody like on the street. It wasn't like there was people around. And thank God I heard a car coming. It was a neighbor. And I had to go out and (sighs) to the end of the driveway and wave sheepishly with my arms, kind of keep my arms crossed, but wave (laughs) and be like, like, hold your breath, holding your boobs, hold my like self bra. Yeah. And then wave a person down the night this man who was like he rolls his window down. he's like hello and I'm like I just got locked out of my rental and he's like oh no and we figure out he knows Ellen my oh. friend who was the person who lived in town and who got me the friends and family rate in the first place so he left a note on her door Aww. and I was like thanks so much well she told me she was leaving town yeah. that day so yeah. I was like that's not gonna help so fucked so I just went and after a while, cause I tried every door, that house was yeah. locked up so tight. Good. They should never worry again about anything. <laughs> I literally was like taking the screens off the outside of windows mm. to see if I could, it was crazy. Finally, a security guard drives by. Mm-hmm. I do the same shame wave. I'm like, Hey, shame no, wave. It looks weird. Hi. <laughs> cause also at one point I was wearing a knit. Black knit cap. Oh, you look like a burglar. I was dressed exactly like a burglar. The, bra- the braless burglar. Yeah. That's like, that strikes again. Yeah, that's how she gets, like, freaks you out. And then she <laughs> steals all your stuff. So I have to wave this guy down. And he, in all his, like, full-on biker mustache, yes. like, he was a biker. Yes. And... But he was driving it like a RAV4. And I was like, hi, I locked myself out. You know those Harley guys love <laughs> a RAV. On the weekends. On the weekends. He's got to drive like a safe looking yeah. security car. Yeah. He jumps out and he's got every house's house keys on a chain. Which seems dangerous, but I'm happy for him. He's security. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you want it at that point. Yeah, right. It's like the best thing ever. He let, he let me ride in. It oh was the greatest. But I had been standing out there so long. I told you this. I got a sunburn. Like it was that because at one point I just started staring at the sky. Like I was like, well, now I've completely blown off Stephen and Georgia. They're like sitting on the Zoom waiting for me and I'm just not there. Well, you've never not. We figured something was wrong because yeah. you've never not like call, been like, hey, I need this many more minutes. Right. And then usually when you called like, me, I was like, oh, fuck. I start, I'll usually text, hey, sorry, I started plucking my eyebrows. And, um, <laughs> now I'm late. But yeah, no, it was it was hilarious because also but barefoot, there was all kinds of walking uh, around the house, which was like is kind of a little bit on a mountainside. Yeah, wasn't great. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Um, well, but, you Stephen know, and I had a nice conversation about cats a shocker and then yeah figured <laughs> figured you'd be around eventually. <laughs> um should we do exactly right news absolutely yeah it's related to ladies one year anniversary of joining exactly right they've Yay. been around for much much longer mm-hmm. they're a very legendary old and storied podcast but for their exactly right one year anniversary their guest this week is georgia Hartstart. hey that's me it was really fun um we i told them the story of punching a girl at soccer practice when i was a kid and just we had a lot of fun <laughs> chit-chatting <laughs> awesome yeah That was great. Great fun. And then on this week's episode of Parent Footprint with my cousin, Dr. Dan, hosts Elizabeth Taylor and Alex Shapiro, who, of course, host the True Beauty Brooklyn podcast, are his guests. 
Also, we've been recording new fan cult videos. And now if you're a member of the fan cult, you get to vote on like some of the um, question topics, like go to the fan cult. If you are a member and you can see the new videos and then you can see also the ways you can interact and, and have a say in what we talk about on those. That's right. Tell us what to talk about. Oh my God. There's a new MFM animated video by Nick Terry. Of course, it's on the exactly right YouTube channel. It's, did you watch it? I haven't watched it yet. Oh my God. It is, he is every fucking time. He's a genius. He's really the greatest. He nails it so hard. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own shit. It's like, the best. So go watch it. Uh, it. The episode's called The Chainsaw Chicken, uh, based on an old hometown. It's just incredible. <laughs> we a, love you, Nick Terry. We love you, Nick Terry. There's a bunch of other episodes that you, I mean, yeah, all of them are there. So please watch. Also, we just came out with, you know, the poetry fridge magnets that came out that were very popular in the 90s. Well, <laughs> there's now a My Favorite Murder version of those with all the words that we like to use yeah. on this show. Um, and you can buy those magnets and then stick them on your fridge yeah. and put together your own phrases. I have fuckity fuck fuck online and then all the names of my animals. I got one for free, if you can believe it. Um, and then there's also other magnets and classic designs that are new. So go ahead and put those all over your fridge, if you please. See, business. <laughs> it's about business. We're business ladies. At the end of the day. What do you want? It's a business we've built here. Yeah. Um, well, should we get into it? Let's do it. I think you're first. I am. Okay. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com slash 
slash murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. All right. Well, then my story this week was suggested to me while I was on my extended vacation by my friend Janet Ramazzi, mm-hmm. mother of Mary and Sophie, all three who listen to this podcast. Oh. So hi, everybody. Hi, hi. Ramazzi ladies. Hi, and because it takes place in San Francisco and I was up there. So it's like it's kind of it's a hometown I never knew existed. That's about the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper, which has been yes. the, our newspaper of note, along with the examiner. Full props to the examiner. I don't think that one exists anymore. But oh, are you doing the Zodiac Killer? No, <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of it. What if I just unrolled this thing? It was like it's <laughs> four hours long. No, this is actually it's about the murder of the San Francisco Chronicle founder, Charles D. Young. Oh. This is fucking nutso. I'd never heard anything about this. Huh. You know, we're now in Kate Winkler Dawson territory. This yeah. is very historical murder time. Okay. I'm going to give my sources. The first one is an article from the San Francisco Chronicle by writer Gary Camia. There's the New York Times archives from 1880. Wow. There's two articles from the archives. Then there's a digital book from Google Books that's written by Charles F. Adams that's called Murder by the Bay, Historic Homicide in and about the city of San Francisco. Then there is the San Francisco Chronicle Archives from newspapers.com. And it's the actual article by Charles DeYoung about Calic. Oh, man. Then there's the Wikipedia page about Charles DeYoung, the Wikipedia page about Isaac Smith Calic, and then there's the Charles D. Young obituary from the New York Times archives in 1884. Okay, so I will tell you, it starts in 1876. Mm-hmm. So this is like just past the minor 49er era of San Francisco. Okay. Where it basically gold mining, like up in Sacramento, yeah. Sutter Creek and stuff, brought all that money down into San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But it also brought all the miners yeah. and then a bunch of crooks and a yeah. bunch of people that were going to steal your money and a bunch of like, it was a gritty town. Okay. So... This takes place in 1876, or or this is this one of the starting points, I should say, um, because that's when a very charming and boisterous pastor named Reverend Isaac Calic moves from Kansas to San Francisco, and he takes a job at the Baptist Metropolitan Temple. So this red-headed, red-bearded, 240-pound preacher captivates Whoa. a congregation of up to 5,000 members every Sunday, which is the largest in the city, and he soon wins over the hearts of many San Francisco believers. So much so that in August of 1879, the newly formed political faction in the area called the Working Men's Party nominates Calic to run for mayor. Okay. So... What the faithful of San Francisco don't know about Calic is that he isn't necessarily, hasn't always been, I should say, the pious man of God that he uh, presents himself to be in the pulpit every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Back in 1855, he had found it necessary to move from Boston, Massachusetts to Kansas to escape the bad reputation that he had gotten for himself as a boozer and a gambler and uh a little loose with the ladies in his East Coast congregation. Mm. Amen. Right? 
Calic never quit these less than holy habits. He just was able to conceal them better in Kansas to the point where he'd even started a political career there, becoming a Democratic leader in the Kansas state legislature. Now he's moved to San Francisco, hoping to rebuild his political career. But there's one man who stands in the way of his plans, and that is the editor in chief of the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper, Charles D. Young. So basically, up until this point, the Chronicle had supported the Working Man's Party. But in the summer of 1879, the DeYoung family and the Chronicle jumped political ships and they started backing the opposing party, which was called the Honorable Bilks. Cool. Um, Cool name. When the news of Calix's nomination for mayor got to Charles DeYoung, the owner of the San Francisco Chronicle, he vows to compel Calic to decline the nomination. So he doesn't like it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like uh, anything about it. And he's not into it. And I think maybe he'd done a little research. Right. So a couple days later, Charles DeYoung calls Calic and tells him to his face over the phone to step (laughs) down from the mayoral race. And of course, Calic refuses. So Charles threatens to reprint the story of Calic's Boston scandals in the Chronicle. Yeah. So Calic tells Charles to go ahead and then issues a vague threat of his own saying that he can share equally terrible stories about the DeYoung family. Mm. But Charles isn't scared at all. Mm-hmm. So on August 20th, 1879, the Chronicle releases its first in a series of disparaging stories about the Reverend Isaac Callan's past. So... The first article details um, his many, quote, two intimate relations with several married and unmarried members of his flock, one of which actually led to a trial where 10 jurors found him guilty of adultery, although he was never sentenced. There was another story that was an, a, quote, escapade, an escapade with one of the Tremont Temple choristers in Boston. And a third was about a, a failure to pay his debts. So all of these scandals, as DeYoung says in the article, lead to Cal- Alex being, quote, driven forth from Boston like an unclean leper. So essentially, it's now it's just like a battle is waging in the newspaper um, against this man. DeYoung then publishes at least two more stories about Calic's immoral exploits, including one that accused even Calic's deceased father of sundry immoralities. Just vague and and being immoral vaguely. You know, just yeah, he's just kind of a bad guy. Yeah. Sundry. So Charles is now satisfied that all a bad press will destroy Calic's reputation for good. But for Calic, this war has just begun. So let me just tell you a little bit about Charles D. Young and how he got to be the head of the San Francisco Chronicle. He was born in uh, 1846 in Louisiana. He's one of eight children. He has five sisters and two brothers. And the younger two boys are Harry and Gustavus. And around 1854, um, their father dies, leaving their mother to care for eight children on her own. So soon after, the whole family moves to San Francisco, where eight-year-old Charles gets work as a newsboy to help support the family. So it's real serious. You know, everybody has to pitch in and get a job. So, of course, this is 1854 San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So it's about as rough and dirty as it possibly can be. Mm. 
the quote here is the great bulk of the population of San Francisco consists of gamblers, whiskey dealers, and miners who come to the city to dissipate their gains made in the mountains. So it's a little bit like Vegas yeah, or Reno in or that the wild way. west in a way. Yes, it's completely the wild west. Yeah. Like there's a lot of gunplay in this story. It sounds fun to be honest. So growing up in this environment makes Charles a particularly tough kid, and he's very intelligent and really street smart. He never shies away from a fight. And as he gets older, he makes a habit of carrying a revolver with him everywhere he goes, <laughs> which is kind of sounds like that was relatively yeah. common based on this story that yeah. I read and only this story. <laughs> but at the same time, he has a very soft spot for his mother. So he's a real gun toting Cowboy sweetheart. Okay. So <laughs> he's not interested in school. Amen. Amen. Yeah. But he's trying to make life as easy as possible for his elderly mother and, and the rest of his family. So he focuses on work and he ends up landing an apprenticeship at a local printing office. And then soon after in 1859, when he's 13 years old, he starts his own paper called the Holiday Advertiser. <laughs> That's 13. Yes. He's He's doing it. You can tell he's one of those 13 year olds that like he wore he probably wore like a little vest uh -huh. every day and had kind of a scratchy voice yeah. and was like had a timepiece where this yes. a, a pocket watch. Yeah. I also love that his mom is called elderly. I bet she's 38. You know what yeah. I mean? Like back then it was like she's 38. She looks like she's 70. <laughs> she can't walk. That's right. And she's fucking had it. Yeah. Basically here. She's been exhausted by children right. and by gunplay. <laughs> <laughs> and by her love of gold. Um, so, so they, he fucking starts his junior high newspaper. Yeah, it's like a zine. It's He's just like, you know what? Uh, so here's what he does. He's a businessman and a badass. Uh -huh. Once he gets the holiday advertiser off the ground, he turns around and he sells it. Yes. Right. And then he joins forces with his brother, Harry, and he launches a new daily newspaper. Now, this one focuses on the happenings and gossip in San Francisco's theater arts scene. Mm. And it's called the Dramatic Chronicle. Fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, because you have to imagine in the, in this era of San Francisco, yeah. there was tons of theaters and shows yeah. because all the miners are there to spend their money. Right. Right. It's like, it's all about that. And so, he's like, so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so. This person got fired from this and they're fighting with that person. And yeah. how fun. It's and a gossip that, column. Yeah, and then the shows at one shows at eight and one shows at 10. <laughs> Check your gun at the door. <laughs> so they get enough advertisers huh. and they release the first issue of the dramatic chronicle on January 16th, 1865. At this point, Charles is 19 years old. So Jeez. they've launched the Dramatic Chronicle. So that newspaper's popularity grows. And then Charles and Harry enlist Gustavus, their other brother. Mm -hmm. In just four years, they transform their little drama gossip rag into what will become the journalistic juggernaut of its time and beyond the San Francisco Chronicle. Holy shit. So they basically take that and they just are like, no, we're going wide. And this is going to be like the city paper. Wow. Their impressive office building at the corner of Kearney Street and Bush Street becomes the paper's first headquarters. And in a few years, the San Francisco Chronicle grows to be worth $250,000. But this is in in the late 1860s. Oh, my God. It's the equivalent of $6 million Holy in today's market. So they're rich as fuck. And they fucking do it. They, they start their own teen newspaper business. Wow. 
Oh, not like a. They're teens and they start a newspaper. They're the teens. Not, yeah. This isn't sassy. <laughs> I mean, what if sassy was a newspaper? <laughs> I should have kept my copies of sassy. Absolutely I swear to God. You should have. I got sassy first a dish because my mom, there was some magazine drive and my mom signed me up for there. It was supposed to be like teen Vogue, yeah. but at the time it was new yeah. and they just never came out with it. They were like, no, you're getting sassy. Sorry. Sassy. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, great. I love it. Oh, my God. So Charles DeYoung is a man with strong opinions. Good for a newspaper man. He's also open and honest, if not outright aggressive, in exposing the ills of his enemies' pasts through the use of the Chronicle newspaper. And this comes in handy as the success of the Chronicle earns him political clout. So he starts using his publication to support candidates for various political offices when he likes them and disparaging the candidates he doesn't like. And his sharp tongue earns him some enemies, but he isn't afraid of them in the least. In fact, he's reported to be, quote, proud of the notoriety that he had obtained and proud of the personal danger as a legitimate element of that notoriety. Wow. That's from the New York Times archives. So this is like other newspapers talking about okay. the newspaper and the newspaper owner. When the newsman becomes the news. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I just kind of like that idea that if you're going to start this business, that you have to be like, yeah, I'll fight you. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's like, oh, no, this isn't some intellectual endeavor. Yeah. It's just like, no, we're fucking going for it. <laughs> okay. So another element of San Francisco in the 1870s, but which by now it's the 1870s, there's a lot of racial tension because there are 30,000 unemployed citizens because there's a big recession mm -hmm. in 1877. You, this is going to sound very familiar to you, but mm -hmm. the poor white contingent begins to focus their blame on Chinese immigrants who they claim are taking their jobs. Mm -hmm. And so the Working Men's Party exploits this racist blame mentality and promotes themselves as the blatantly anti-Chinese party. Wow. So they vow to bring back jobs to the poor white people. And here comes the Reverend Isaac Kallick with his charisma and his speaking skills and his popularity. He ends up being the perfect choice to lead this cause. So Charles de Young's disdain for Kallick isn't just about his CD pass. It turns out the last mayoral candidate, mayoral, 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 <laughs> who, who knows? <laughs> Nobody knows to this day. So I'm going to go ahead and put an I in there and say mayoral. It feels better. That sounds right. Candidate that the Chronicle endorsed was Andrew J. Bryant. You may have heard of his street. Oh, yeah. Bryant Street. So he won the mayoral election in 1875, uh -huh. but then quickly fell out of favor when the recession came. Uh. Right. So Charles DeYoung is basically kind of has a chip on his shoulder mm -hmm. about who he picked for mayor and the control that he may or may not have in politics. May or may not. May or may not. So basically, DeYoung prints insult after insult about Reverend Kallick mm -hmm. for all of San Francisco to read. In one passage, he writes, quote, at the head of the list of communist tyrants stands Kallick, the mock minister, traveling mountebank and carpetbag demagogue who wants to be mayor, but not because he is fit, 
but because he knows himself to be unfit for the pulpit and is probably an atheist and a blasphemer at heart. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, minced words? Don't do it. It's like, take this down. And then he just starts ranting about all the different ways he can slam this guy. So in response, Reverend Kalik delivers several rage-fueled speeches, calling all of the de Youngs, quote, the hyenas of society, and, quote, hybrid whelps of sin and depravity. In one speech, he even claims that if he's elected mayor, he vows to, quote, kill the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh. He's going to murder the newspaper. <laughs> he can't murder the newspaper. He's pissed. <laughs> okay, but DeYoung is unrelenting. He threatens that if Calic doesn't step down from the race, that he'll publish the transcript from Calic's Boston adultery trial. Uh-oh. This is like clickbait central, totally. but it's oldie fashion D newspapers. This is a Twitter feud. Right. So Calic, he's not letting up at all, except for he only has the one bit, which is right. basically calling the family trash and saying the mother is a whore, essentially. Yeah. So he tells an audience he's speaking to one time, the DeYoungs are the bastard progeny of a whore oh my God. conceived in infamy and nursed in the lap of prostitution. Wow. So it's on. Yeah. It's on. Yeah. Okay. So the next day after that speech, August 23rd, 1879, Charles DeYoung hears about these comments and he loses his shit. Mm-hmm. He grabs his revolver. He marches out of the Chronicle office. He has his carriage driver take him to Calic's church. Around 10 a.m., Calic walks outside where he's greeted by a young boy. The boy points to the carriage on the street and tells Calic that a woman inside wants to pay him her respects. So Calic happily walks up to the carriage, but before he can grab the door handle... Charles DeYoung pulls back the curtain and fires a bullet at point-blank range right into the left side of Calic's chest. Holy shit. The horrified Calic stumbles backwards, clutching his wound as Charles stands and steps closer and fires another shot into Calic's thigh. Then he jumps back into his carriage and orders the driver to pull away. But there's a hitch in his plan because there's a working men's party rally (gasps) taking place nearby. So when they hear the shots, they rush over. They surround DeYoung's carriage. The mob's ready to pull Charles from the carriage and kill him in the street. (sighs) He fends them off by threatening to shoot them. So he's waving that revolver around. Uh Finally, basically, the crowd doesn't retreat until the police come, arrest Charles, and take him away. Mm So Calic's life hangs in the balance for the next nine days as a team of doctors and surgeons work to repair his wounds. Um, competing papers report in favor of Calic because, of course, they right. it's their rival that actually participated in this attempted murder. The shooting's called cowardly and cold-blooded. And of course, the working men's party is furious, especially Calic's son, Isaac. He issues a statement saying that he's confident his dad will recover and become mayor, adding, quote, if DeYoung does not hang, then help me kill him. Whoa. Yeah. So it turns out Calic does recover. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he does it in just in time before the election. The press surrounding the shooting helps boost Calic's votes, yeah. and he ends up winning the 1879 election and becomes the new mayor of San Francisco. Nothing makes you more popular than surviving a fucking crazy-ass shooting yeah, and, like, coming back. And coming back and being like, hey, hey 
Don't yeah. you think that was unfair? If that can't take me down. Nothing can. Vote for me. Vote for me. I can't be murdered with <laughs> bullets. That's right. Meanwhile, Charles DeYoung posts a $25,000 bond, gets out of jail, flees to Mexico, and hides out there waiting for the whole ordeal to blow over. Yeah, yeah it is. So this is very Wild West. Yeah. I mean, it just... Yeah. It can't be... They must have had dirt in the streets. Oh, yeah. I'm Co- imagining. Cobblestones and dirt. And horse shit. Horse and it's shit. just like, it's rough times. That's right. Okay, so five months later in January 1880, Charles returns to San Francisco He comes back and he's the editor in chief of the Chronicle again. He still is going to face a trial for the shooting. But in the meantime, he sends a reporter out to Boston to gather evidence that supports the claims that he initially made against Calic. So he wants it like on record. Yeah. He wants the proof that he wasn't just saying your mom's a whore like Calic was. Yeah. He's like, no, this guy is a bad guy. Yeah. The adultery, the failure to pay debts his all-around bad pastor behavior. Mm -hmm. But in the evening of April 23rd, 1880, while Charles is working late into the night at the newspaper office, Calic's son, Milton, is sitting at a bar on Market Street, brooding over his drink. Mm -mm. Been there. Done that. (laughs) Brooding over a drink. He's got, as my dad would say, a pretty good heat on. (laughs) And he's got a five-shot revolver on his waistband, and he's got revenge on his mind. This is the son. The son of the reverend. Okay. His name is Milton, which is my favorite, where it's like, Milton's going to have his revenge. Milt. Good old Milt's going (laughs) to take care of it. He's wearing a sweater vest, and he's going to have his revenge. (laughs) His name is Milton. So later that night, Charles is talking to an employee whose last name is Reed. The office door swings open and Milton Callick walks in the door. He points his gun at Charles and fires his first of five shots. He misses Charles. Charles takes cover behind his employee. Oh, not cool. Uh Uh-uh. I think HR would have something to say (laughs) about that. And then Milton fires his second shot. The bullet comes close enough for gunpowder to burn Reed's face. But Milton had missed again. Oh, my God. So Charles runs for the back exit. Milton follows closely behind, firing off another two shots that don't land. So there's a chance that back then everyone had a gun, but no one actually knew how to use guns or or shoot them. He was stewing over a couple drinks, not just one. Oh, no, I think he had a bunch of drinks. Yeah, so he's just like, boop, 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 I'm yeah. drunk as shit. He's just like, are you over there? I, can't. <laughs> I see. Why are there four of you? My eyes are crossed. <laughs> Charles takes the opportunity to duck down and reach for his own revolver. Mm-hmm. But before he can grab it, Milton unloads his last shot, and it's actually through Charles's face. <gasps> he's killed instantly. Charles DeYoung was 34 years old. Wow. So while all this is happening, there's a group of de Young haters in a nearby bar. And when they hear the gunshots coming from the Chronicle building, they rush over. And then when they get there and when they see Charles de Young brought out on the stretcher with like the sheet over him, uh-huh. they all start cheering and celebrating in the street. Oh my God. So he really did have a lot of enemies. Yeah. And, you know, he was a controversial character. Charles' funeral is held two days later on April 25th, 1880. While his friends and family mourn the loss and celebrate Charles' impressive and controversial life, Calix supporters boo and hiss the funeral procession as it passes by. Guys, let the family mourn. No, they can't. 
So Milton Cowlick is promptly arrested after the murder and his trial is held in January of 1881. 208 witnesses provide their testimonies over the course of 22 days. So because they were at the Chronicle, right. all of the employees were there. They right. all saw what happened. They all were able to tell the story. And they all were like, yes, it's clear he did it. Milton's gun had clearly fired five shots while Charles's gun was never fired. It looks to be an open and shut case until the end of the trial. When Milton's father, now mayor, Reverend Isaac Callick, takes the stand as the prosecuting attorney questions Mayor Callick, he notices the mayor clanging two small metal object around in the palm of his hand as he's speaking. Finally, unable to ignore distraction any longer, the attorney asks the mayor, what are, what's in your hand? The mayor stands and says, these are the two bullets from DeYoung's murderous weapon, which were extracted from my body. <gasps> and then he turns and hands the bullets to the jurors. Oh my God. What a power play. Also, it's his murderous weapon, except for DeYoung didn't kill him. Right. Murder, anyway. Murderish weapon. Murderesque. The jury deliberates for a few days, and then they find Milton Callick not <gasps> guilty of the murder of Charles DeYoung by reason of extenuating circumstances. Damn. Mm-hmm. To make matters worse, one of the employees who testified to witnessing Milton murder Charles is hit with a perjury charge and ends up serving a stint in prison himself. What? So now a free man, Milton Callick skips town for a little while to let the dust settle on that whole ordeal. When he eventually returns, he works as a lawyer in San Francisco until his death in 1930. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, his father, Isaac Callick, serves two years as a mayor, then opts not to run for re-election in 1881. Mm-hmm. He returns to his pastor job at the Baptist Metropolitan Temple for another two years. Then he leaves that um, job in 1883. He moves to what was at the time Washington Territory. It hadn't become a state yet. Mm-hmm. He takes up farming and he stays there until his death in 1887. Jeez. Uh, so in 1884, Harry DeYoung commissions sculptor F. Marion Wells to make an eight and a half foot bronze statue of Charles DeYoung at his grave in San Francisco's Oddfellow Cemetery. Then Harry takes over operations at the Chronicle, and he ends up running it for the next 50 years. Wow. And the Chronicle is eventually built into a huge and well-respected publication, winning numerous Pulitzer Prizes and becoming famous for its writers, its columnists, and most importantly to me, its movie rating system that appeared in the Sunday edition (laughs) of what they called the pink section, which was the entertainment section. (laughs) I was reminded of this in the um, Wikipedia page, but this truly is the best movie rating system there ever has been and ever will be. And actually, and I found this in the Wikipedia page, Roger Ebert said the exact same thing. Roger Ebert said, quote, the only rating system that makes sense is the little man of the San Francisco Chronicle. So basically, (laughs) this is the movie rating system. There is a tiny man sitting in a movie theater seat and the man is either sitting up out of his seat applauding so it's like his butt is like raised up three inches from the seat so that means he fucking loves this movie he's going crazy that's one review you can get Uh then he's just like sitting up really straight and clapping that's the second one then he's just sitting attentively and watching but not clapping that's the third one then he's asleep (laughs) Then the chair is empty. Those are the five ratings you can get 
Wow. In the Chronicle. And no joke. It's like I took it for granted. Everyone in the Bay Area took it for granted. Yeah. Because you would just go through and it'd be like, oh, no, the chair's empty. Like yeah, that, that's, that's so, so complicated, though. Well, but it visually. It, yeah. It's complicated to hear it described. But it makes sense when you see it. Visually, you get it immediately. Oh, my God. It's a little man that looks like Wimpy, the yeah. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for him for the day. In my mind. And he's either loving a movie, like he's going apeshit, or yeah. he fucking left. Or he's sleeping. It's the greatest. And that is the story of the murder of Charles DeYoung, the founder of the San Francisco Chronicle. Wow. I have never heard that. I had no idea. I'd never heard it at all. And I'm from there. Yeah, that's wild. Wow. Great job. Thank you. Twists and turns and dusty roads. Dusty old roads. Dusty old roads. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea, because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional, and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code space 80. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit 
visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. This isn't historic, but so recently I was looking up just for fun, uh, locked room murders Mm. or locked room mysteries where someone's murdered in a room that by all intents and purposes, no one could have gotten into. And I came across the story I'd heard about. Um, it's the mysterious locked room murder of Greg Flanagan. And there's this great, you know, long Vanity Fair article written by Mark Bowden. And it's a great article and a really crazy, weird case. It's a mystery, but and it's not. Okay. So the locked room mystery is essentially um, a murder is committed. There's no explanation for how the perpetrator was able to get in or out of the crime scene without getting caught. Uh, and here's a pretty, pretty crazy one. It's very Agatha Christie, this whole concept. Yeah. 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 So September of 2010, 55-year-old Greg Flanagan is living in Lafayette, Louisiana with his wife, Susie. The couple had married when they were young, divorced went their separate ways, and then 15 years later, got married again. Oh. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. They're very much in love, and um, Greg is the vice president of OGM Land Co., which is an oil company he started with his brother, Michael, and the company's doing really well. So Greg has this kind of weird schedule, work schedule. So a lot of his work is conducted two hours away in Beaumont, Texas. So on Monday mornings, he drives out to Beaumont, checks into this hotel called the MCM Elegante Hotel. Sounds elegant. Elegante. Elegante. It must be very elegant. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And he stays in Beaumont until Thursday, going to work every day there, and then drives home and spends the weekend with his family. And Greg is this kind of like, he's like this kind of salt and pepper attractive, like handsomely rugged looking dude. Looks like he's in good shape. Greg has been working this schedule for 10 years. He always stays at this elegant hotel. It's like his his place. He seems like a creature of habit. Um he could rent an apartment in Beaumont, but he likes the simplicity of staying at a hotel and has kind of a ritual when he goes there, which I totally appreciate. Um, so his ritual when he gets back to the room after a long day of work, he's always tired, of course. So he likes to watch a movie. So he gets on his bed, props himself up with two pillows, watches a movie, eats a candy bar, drinks a soda and smokes cigarettes. Like that's his ritual. On September 15th, 2010, Greg is staying in room 348 at Elegante. He speaks to his wife, Susie, multiple times throughout the day, which is normal for them. He spends the evening like he does every other evening when he's in the hotel. Tonight, he's eating a Reese's Crispy Crunch bar, drinking a root beer, smoking his ciggies, and watching Iron Man 2. Mm. So just hanging out on the bed in his pajamas. The next day, Susie calls, but... Nobody answers, which is weird because Greg is known to always answer the phone when Susie called, even if he's in a meeting, which I love their codependency. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like speaks to me. Um, at around 930 that morning, Susie calls Greg's office and finds out that he's not there. So, of course, she panics and two co-workers go to his hotel room. Nobody answers the door there. And so management lets them in and they find Greg dead on the floor. Mm-hmm. He's face down on the rug with a cigarette 
in between his fingers like he collapsed while walking across the room. The police arrive and notice that there's no blood in the room. There's no obvious wounds on his body. And there's also no sign of a break in or struggle. Nothing is missing from the room. He had including his wallet. He had a stack of hundreds in it. It's still there. So police don't suspect it's a robbery gone wrong. Because of the circumstances, everyone assumes that Greg's cause of death is just natural causes. And it turns out Susie was like, well, yeah, he never exercised and he never went to the doctor. So we kind of always figured and he ate whatever he wanted. He wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, unhealthy, but he kind of lived the life he wanted to live. So I think no one was really surprised by it being natural causes. And then when police speak with guests who were staying at the hotel as well, no one reports hearing or seeing anything unusual um, the night before. In fact, a maintenance man had been in Greg's room around 830 that night while Greg was alive because he had tried to microwave a thing of popcorn and had blown the fuses in like the whole hotel. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the maintenance man had to come up at 830. He was alive and well. So natural causes seemed like the obvious reason. But Greg is transported to the medical examiner just for the basic autopsy. Dr. Tommy Brown examines Greg's body and finds only two marks, a one inch abrasion where his face had hit the rug and a half inch laceration on his scrotum. According to Vanity Fair, the article, the quote, sack itself was swollen and discolored and around the room was a small amount of edema fluid. Uh, the bruising had spread up through the groin area and across the right hip. So Dr. Brown theorizes that the wound to Greg's scrotum was most likely caused by a hard kick. So when Dr. Brown opens Greg's torso up, he finds something he's not expecting. It's it's a total mess. There's a lot of blood and internal damage, mm-hmm. even though there's just that one little laceration outside. There are small lacerations to his intestines, his stomach and liver. He also has two broken ribs and a hole in his heart. Dr. Brown theorizes the injuries to Greg's chest and his body were caused by being beaten or crushed to death. Oh, my God. Then he surmises that Greg bled to death in less than 30 seconds. And Dr. Brown rules Greg's death a homicide. So when lead detective Scott Apple finds out that Greg was murdered, he is very surprised by it. Homicide doesn't line up with the evidence in the room. And Greg's body doesn't show any outward signs of being beaten or crushed. And there's no sign of an altercation at the hotel room. uh, And no one at the hotel heard anything in the hallways or anything like that. So Apple considers that maybe Greg had been beaten to death somewhere else. And then his body was taken back to the room. Um... But it doesn't make sense because someone would have heard or seen something in that case. Plus, Greg was found with that lit cigarette. So no one would have gone to the trouble to put a lit cigarette or, you know, a cigarette in his hand. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. So Apple focuses on trying to find a motive. So maybe there was someone who uh, wanted Greg dead. But it doesn't seem that way. Everyone loved Greg. He didn't appear to have any enemies. Susie described her husband as a kind and intelligent person who lived an honorable life. She said Greg couldn't even tell a white lie and people respected that about him. Apple also finds that Greg was never at the hotel bar. He didn't socialize with anyone. It's not like, you know, he was a partier. Apple looks into the possibility that Susie had hired a hitman or maybe Greg's business partner, his brother, Michael, had done so. Mm. But once again, he finds that those are dead ends. Both Susie and Michael loved Greg very much. So Apple looks into the hotel maintenance records again because, you know, the maintenance man had been in his room when he had broken a circuit. 
blown a circuit, whatever. So it had affected the power in multiple rooms besides Greg's. He called the front desk to let him know what happened. The maintenance man is sent to his room to reset the breaker. And turns out when Apple looks into the maintenance man, he finds out that the man is a sex offender. So he, Apple theorizes that perhaps the man punched Greg's scrotum with a screwdriver as some cor- kind of sexual assault. And that's what caused the internal injuries, maybe. Um, but this angle doesn't pan out. It's it just doesn't work. They're just trying to put something together. Right. To see, yeah. Right. The other lead um, is about some electricians staying in the room next to Greg's. At the time Greg was murdered, a group of electricians from Wisconsin are all staying at the hotel for months while they worked on a refinery expansion. And on the night Greg was killed, three of the electricians were in the room next to Greg's partying. They had been questioned on the day that Greg's body had been found. They all said they hadn't heard or seen anything. But Apple keeps going back to these three electricians. He knows that they're known to get drunk together and party. He theorized that the men were drinking when maybe when Greg blew the circuit, maybe the men knocked on Greg's door, were pissed about it. Some words were exchanged and then a fight could have broken out in the hallway. Um, then maybe Greg was kicked in the scrotum by one of the electricians who was probably wearing steel toe boots, you know, just this far-fetched theory. And then Greg went back to his room and collapsed. But the theory doesn't make sense. Again, the cigarette found between his fingers and no one heard anything like that. Right. So in November, after a few months of no answers, Greg's family announces a $50,000 reward. That leads nowhere. And so Susie hires a man named Ken Brennan, who's a former police officer and DEA special agent now working as a private detective. He's got like a really strong New York accent, it seems. Sounds kind of rad. In April, Brennan meets with Apple and they go to the hotel room where Apple tells Brennan everything he knows, like they're going to work together on this case. Brennan says that Apple's theory about the electricians is the most plausible. And they start looking into this angle further. They re-interview the electricians who had been staying in the rooms throughout the hotel. One says he heard rumors about a gun going off in one of the rooms, but he isn't sure if it's related. And Apple and Brennan go back to Greg's hotel room and scour the area for a bullet hole. They check the floor, the furniture, the walls, but they don't find anything. And then according to Vanity Fair, just as they're about to give up, Brennan quote, notices an indentation in the wall alongside the closed door that leads into the adjoining room. Ooh. The indentation looks like a repair job. They decide to go into the adjoining room where the electricians had been and look at that side. There's a hole that lines up with the one that goes into Greg's room. It had been patched with toothpaste. Oh, that's a like an old college dorm room trick. Right. trick. Like, yeah, you won't get caught or like... Right. Oh. Any kind of... If you have a pin prick in the wall, you mm-hmm. cover it with a little toothpaste. Yeah. So it turns out it is a bullet hole, which had traveled through the wall of 349, where the dudes were partying, and had exited through the adjoining door to room 348, the exact spot where Greg had been sitting, <gasps> propped up, watching Iron Man 2. He got shot through the wall. Mm. Brennan and Apple go back to the medical examiner, Dr. Brown, 
with their findings, he's like, that's impossible. He was not shot. There's no way I wouldn't have seen that. He he had seen no evidence of a bullet hole. But as they look over the autopsy photos, they realize that the bullet had entered Greg's scrotum. And according to Vanity Fair, Dr. Brown hadn't realized it was a bullet entry because, quote, the scrotum was soft and pliable. It had folded over the entry wound, making it less obvious that it was actually there. God, that's so that's just so odd. And like and like, what are the chances? Yes, completely. After entering the scrotum, the bullet had bounced around inside of Greg's torso, damaging organs as it went. And the hole that had been found in Greg's heart had also been a bullet hole. Oh, my God. So Andrew Descrona went through his body and did at his heart. So everything now makes sense to them. When Greg was shot, he was smoking a cigarette in bed. After being shot, he got off the bed and moved towards the door. He probably didn't, probably just had this sharp pain and didn't know what it was, right? So he gets up to go to the door. But he falls face first to the ground and dies before he could make it, which explained why he still had a cigarette in his hand when he fell. Dr. Brown's now convinced that Greg died of a gunshot wound, um, not of a beating or crushing. So Brennan and Apple decide to re-interview those electricians who had been in 349. They first meet with Tim and he tells them that he doesn't know anything. But after detectives tell him what they know and that they know something happened, Tim confesses. On the night of September 15th, the three men were drinking in the room. At some point, Lance asked Trent to go get a whiskey bottle and his nine millimeter pistol from his car. Trent comes back and Lance takes the gun and starts playing with it. And the gun goes off accidentally. Mm -hmm. And a bullet hit the wall behind them. They didn't go check to see if the bullet had struck anyone. I mean, what are the fucking chances it would have? Right. But still, the chances are good. It happens all the time. Don't fucking play with guns, you fucking idiot. Absolutely. Why why is that a thing? Why can't men just be like, hey, I like hanging out with you? Instead, they're like, go get my gun. I have to play with my gun in front of you. Yeah, my loaded gun. (sighs) Guns should have breathalyzers. I mean, good Lord. It just shouldn't be. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. Um, they didn't go check. Instead, Lance freaks out, wraps the gun up, took it back to the car. Trent went back to his room. They were all really upset about it. And Lance and Tim used toothpaste and toilet paper to fill the bullet hole in the room. Then went to the hotel bar and kept drinking. They say they didn't know anyone had been hurt until Greg was found the next morning. They freak out. And Tim thought Lance had killed the guy. He, like they obviously could tell what was happening. Lance gives an attorney the gun. Then the attorney looks at the original autopsy and is like, no, he got beaten to death. So you didn't actually kill him. So you don't need to go forward with that. So Lance figured he was clear of all wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the electricians stay at their job until it's complete. They go back home to Wisconsin. They don't tell anyone what happened before leaving the station. After being questioned, Tim calls Lance in front of Brennan and Apple, tells him that he had confessed after officers told him that Greg had died from a gunshot wound. Lance refuses to believe it, but then Tim tells him it's true and he should contact his attorney and detectives. So the other guy, Trent, corroborates what Tim had said and Lance Mueller is arrested. And finally, the locked room mystery of Greg Flanagan is solved. 
Um, so in October 2012, 48-year-old Lance pleads no contest to manslaughter. He faces sentencing from probation to 20 years, and he ends up getting sentenced to 10 years. Ugh. After the judge tells him that he had just gone to authorities or at least checked to see if anyone had been hurt after he fired the gun, he probably wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But he didn't. And that is the locked door murder mystery of Greg Flanagan. God, it's just a tragedy all around. Yeah. It's like... There's so much to lose. Yeah. There's so much to lose. He was 55 and, you know, living his life. Also just random and crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what, like what the chances I feel like are one in a million that they would hit someone who was sitting in that exact fucking spot Yeah, and like not even hit him in the arm, like hit him and, and killed him. Yes. Within moments. Yes, exactly. Like the, the, the odds are insane. And also just, just in one second, yeah. everything changes yeah. and everything. And they don't know, but they also didn't ask. Like, right. You shoot a gun through a wall yeah. in a hotel. Yeah. I would have somebody check on it. I would call down. Absolutely. And be like, hey, we fucked up really bad. Yeah. But that idea that you're kind of like, I'm sure it's fine. Right. I mean, even I hate to say that because, you know, there's no malice. That was just a stupid, drunken mistake. Totally. totally. It's really, it's tragic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that's what happens when you play with guns. Yeah, absolutely. God. Should we do a couple fucking arrays? Sure. Want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Go ahead. Okay. Um, this was emailed to us. It starts, fucking hooray. I quit drinking two years ago today. I obviously didn't know that nine weeks into sobriety, the entire fucking world would shut down and I might lose my business and home. I've been hilariously pissed at myself for my terrible timing, but just imagining where I might find myself today after those months in quarantine with fear, anxiety, and booze makes me so fucking relieved. So cheers to pushing 50 and coping with the pandemic, menopause, and this hellscape we call home (laughs) with the help of medical science and the world's greatest friends, not alcohol. Oh, nice. No. Wait, who wrote that? I didn't sign it. Oh, Anon? Anon's. Alcoholic Anonymous? <laughs> um, amazing work. And you know what? It's so, it's such a good point to make that like everybody gets to have their escape however they need it. Mm-hmm. We all need our oblivion, as my therapist likes to say. But it does add to it, you know, alcohol is a yeah. depressant. Yeah. And the idea that that person is, uh, appreciating it's almost like it's good to practice doing hard things mm. it's good to practice doing the thing you don't want to do because right. then the next hard thing is a little bit easier because you do it i love that yeah that's that's actually a quote from my cousin stevie he's the one that said that that's a really great point though too it's like i get grumpy that i have to do the things i don't want to do but the things that i know will help me like not drinking and exercise but yeah you practice those and then the big things come that are even harder to yeah. do and you're you've you can believe in yourself it's like challenge practice yeah. where you're just kind of like then you can then everything doesn't feel so overwhelming right. if you're kind of like all right this isn't it's like when we we were texting earlier i'm like it's not the hardest thing we're ever going to do we can do it <laughs> yeah which is you know that's like i stole that from someone else too where i was complaining about going to the dentist because i didn't yeah. go to the dentist in a long time and the person who said it to me is like, it's not the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And I was like, yeah, so you're right about that. Oh, God. 
My first one is from Anya uh, from Twitter, Anya underscore 0515. This is from back in November. I printed these ones up and I have them just sitting on my desk. I know. They're so <laughs> minor old. They're evergreen. Yeah. So Anya says, my fucking hooray is that yesterday I got to open a production of RNH. What does that mean? RNH's. Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, in which I play Cinderella, showing all the children of color in my community <gasps> they can be whatever they want to be. Oh my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is beautiful. Congratulations, Anya. That's incredible. I hope that run of Cinderella was amazing because yeah. I bet it's over now. <laughs> uh, all right. My last one. This is one's called Fucking Hooray, now featuring Tearaway Pants. Oh. This is from Megan. My fucking gray is that my boyfriend, who I spent all of Christmas Day roasting for wearing tearaway pants, ended up tearing off his pants in front of my whole family to reveal nice clothes and then propose to me. (laughs) (laughs) How good is that? Oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, good. That's such a... Oh, that's the best. So how did he propose to you? Well... (laughs) Whoosh, tearaway pants. He showed up all sloppy, and I was I had to give him shit for oh looking sloppy. Oh, he knew that would bug her. Yeah, what a good move too. Like, hey, Megan, Fuck in you. front of the whole family, hilarious. He knows how close I am with my family, and enlisted the help of my mom to make it absolutely perfect. <laughs> Love it. He also picked out the ring all by himself and showed it to my mom, whose response was, "You literally found Megan in ring form." God, congratulations, Megan. Oh. High five. High five and tear away pants. <laughs> this is also Twitter from Roman Danvers, R.M. Danvers. My fucking hooray is that after two years and seven months of not speaking, I saw my parents and we are now on track to having a better relationship. They also told me that they were proud to have me, a trans man, as their son. Oh, God. Right? Chills. Congratulations, Roman. Oh, my God, Roman. What an incredible name, first of all. But, (laughs) oh, my God, two and a half like that. Also, just the the ability to stick in and keep trying with something that hurts so bad and is so difficult. It's the amount of strength that shows. Because it is all about repair work, as we know, in the long term. And that is an incredible accomplishment. And it really says something about Roman's parents, too. Yeah. And it's such a it's such a mature, it's a mature, like it's mature to decide that you don't need a relationship with people who have hurt you, but it's just as mature to decide that you want to work through those things to have a different and better relationship with someone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. He killed it. Yeah. Congratulations, Roman. Guys, great fucking arrays. Keep sending them in and then we'll read them in three months. <laughs> <laughs> like we'll read them when we read them. Yeah. They were in a drawer. Mine had to simmer in the drawer a little bit That's to right. just get to the perfect spot. They had a, mwah, aged, <laughs> yes. lightly aged. Perfectly aged. Oh, my God. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's it for us, right? Yeah. You guys, all of this epic stuff we couldn't fucking obviously do without you. We're nothing without We're you. We're nothing. And we appreciate you so much. We we are huge fans of yours. Yeah. So stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. 
Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe.